So you have to say, this is pure technical. I need to make my decision on when I would sell. And there's some technical things that you can do. You can look at uh, uh, rolling averages and look back a certain period of time and when it looks like it's a good time to drop out. Or you can just say, hey, I put $7,000 in this thing. It's now worth $140,000. I should take some profit. Almost universally what I'm seeing, and by almost universally, there's people that have bought houses out of cryptocurrencies and they've bought cars out of it. Take your profits when the profits are good. That's true across the market. Set an allocation and say, I don't want this part of my portfolio to be higher than 10% of my portfolio. And when it gets above, when it's at 20%, we'll sell 10% of it. Get it back down. Take that profit and use it somewhere else. Use it to invest in maybe something conservative take the profit. That's how professionals do it. Unfortunately, and I can't say this enough, that is not how people are buying meme stocks or selling meme stocks. They're selling meme stocks for the same reason that they're buying meme stocks. Same with crypto. They buy it because it's going up. They sell it because it's going down. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we are bald. Oh, together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and, and mm -hmm. bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to you the dated yourself this tape will destruct your podcast tape is about to self-destruct that's <laughs> why you can't find the tape in it anymore <laughs> it already has self-destructed because it's too old and uh, the information that we do present in this podcast we get from sources we think are very reliable but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else we just do the best we can the information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. There's a lot of things being said about the economy and about the market that indicate that the world is coming to an end very shortly. At least that's what we're reading in the, in the press and the financial press, the Wall Street Journal and so on. Which, by the way, is an indication that we're in a bull market. Yeah. This Even though we're of, experiencing maybe correction right now. Right. The, well, corrections come in the midst of bull markets. Corrections don't come in the midst of bear markets. So if we're having a correction, almost by definition, we're in a bull market. The, 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 the thing I wanted to point out is there's something out there that it doesn't make a lot of headlines most of the time unless it's a really slow news day. And that is the conference board leading economic indicators. And I think there's 10 of them and they average them together. And the conference board then says it's either positive or negative. 
And the, the important thing about the leading economic indicators, there's also, by the way, uh, coincident economic indicators and lagging economic indicators, if you want to really get geeky about it. But the leading ones are the ones that are important for this. We have, in, in, since the 19, early 1960s, when the conference board first started publishing its leading economic indicators, we have never had a recession that was not predicted six months or more in advance by the leading economic indicators, which on the face of it is pretty weird. For example, last year we had, uh, in 20, early in 2020, I guess it's the year before last now, we had a recession. And the recession, the proximate cause of the recession was a virus. So how the heck would the leading economic indicators predict a virus? I don't know. But uh, about that's six the months thing. before it we didn't. had... It didn't. It was predicting well, other pieces of the economy that were hurting. Right. But I think it's fascinating that in that particular instance, the leading economic indicators turned negative six months before the recession, even though the recession, the proximate cause of the recession was the virus. Uh, that's one of those things that is weird, and there, there's a lot of argument that there's no real link between the two. They just always work. And when we have one of those situations where there's no apparent link between two things, but they always happen together, I'm thinking we're just missing the connection. But the leading economic indicators are up 0.8% in December. They were up 0.7% in November. They were up 0.7% in October. What does that mean? That means historically we can, or his, the, the historical record is pretty clear. We're not headed into a recession. The yield curve is positive. What does that mean? It means, means that it's pretty that, clear we're not headed into a recession. Right. Yield curve just means that if you're looking at a bond that's going to give you your money back in 30 years and a, and a, a little note that, or bill that's going to give you your money back in five days, uh, you should be having a higher interest rate on the thing that's lasting longest. Just like yeah. if you're talking about your mortgage, a 15-year mortgage should have a lower interest rate than a 30-year mortgage because you're mm -hmm. not risking the money for as long. So a yield so, curve means it's a healthy yield curve is higher for longer maturity, farther away maturity, and lower maturity has a lower yield on it, a lower interest rate. And that's called a positive yield curve. It's a good sign. When the yield, when the yield curve goes negative, and, and we, I talked about this last hour, but I think it's important if you're concerned about what's going on in the markets and in the economy and so on. It's important to note that the two-year treasury note is at 1%. The 30-year treasury bond is about 2.18%. That means it costs twice as much in terms of interest rate to borrow for 30 years annually as it does for one year for the federal government. also means that when you go to the bank or you go to try to lock your money in someplace where you can get a reasonable rate of return, it's going to be pretty low in most cases. But that means that the signals that occur before a recession, and recessions are normally coincident with major bear markets, just aren't there. Now, there's exceptions to that. There's, there's a couple of exceptions on the market downturns. There was no warning from the economy about what happened in 1987. Um, but on the other hand, 1987 was over with the 1987 market collapse was over with fairly quickly. Really scary, but over with fairly quickly. Um, 
although the market by any definition was by was in the stratosphere by the August by August of 1987. And one of the reasons I say corrections are so good, and it's important that we have corrections, we may be about to have one, is we didn't have a correction for a long time prior to the market crash of 1987. What happened? Something called portfolio insurance came along, which was a sales technique, by the way, used by stockbrokers where you would basically put in an order to sell if your stock dropped a certain amount, and thereby you were no, in no risk of the stock. Let's say you put an order to sell if the stock dropped 10%, if, your, if the stocks in your portfolio dropped 10%, it was an automatic sell order. Theoretically, that portfolio insurance would mean that the most you could lose on your portfolio was 10% because then you'd sell. And I think a lot of people have forgotten, and of course a lot of people weren't, we were investing, they weren't born in 1987, so it's hard for them to forget. But in 1987, what happened was the confidence in the stock market went up and up and up. Why did it go up and up and up? Because people were investing and thinking they couldn't lose money. When the market started to fall in August, and it continued to fall, which like it's doing right now, and it hit about the 10% point at the end of September, the beginning of October, the sell orders started kicking in. The problem with a lot of sell orders kicking in all at once, and they were all kicking in at the same time, is it causes a lot of people, a lot of stocks to attempt to be sold at the same time. And there's probably, in this case, there certainly were not enough buyers to buy all the stocks. And since it was a market sell, it's sell at whatever price you can get was the portfolio insurance. And since there were fewer and fewer buyers as the market continued to fall, the market went into free fall on Black Monday in October of 1987, because there were all these automatic sell orders that were hitting. It's an early flash crash. And nobody to buy, and they just kept falling until it, they fell, fell about 30% in a very, in about three days, two days, the market fell about 30%. A lot of those orders were kicked in one day and didn't execute for as long as three days. Why didn't people were trying to cancel them, but they couldn't get through to their broker, they couldn't get in the brokers, couldn't get through to the market. The market was overwhelmed with sell orders. We don't have that situation anymore. So I don't think we're likely to get a 1987. But just it's important to be aware that corrections are what keep that type of thing from happening. And you'll hear us, and we have in the past gotten a little nervous in the last year saying it's been a long time since we had a correction here. We probably need a correction. Uh, we haven't had a correction in a long time. So really, if we do get a correction, if the market drops further on Monday or Tuesday and we get official an official correction in the S&P 500 and we have some people bail out and it goes down a little further, it's not something that I would recommend people be concerned about. Just sit it out and relax and smile a lot uh, because we need a correction to clean the froth out of the market at this point. You know, that's my soapbox. I agree. Uh, a good correction is important. There's lots of lots and lots of companies that have been bid up way above where even their own executives think is a good place to be. We look at executive selling across the tech market. It's really high right now. And if you look at executive buying across the tech market in 2020 at the depths of the market, it was really high. So the executives were buying in saying that's way, way, way too cheap. And then you come to now and the executives are selling in tech. And you can look that up, by the way. That's a, it's a 
publicly available thing to it's see. Called in, it's called insider trading, legal right. insider trading. Right. So you look at what the insiders are doing, and if a bunch of them are selling right now, I can tell you that they know more about what's happening in the company than you do. Uh, and if they think the price is too high or if they're just taking profits, it's a good time to take profits. This is a thing that I've had a lot of people talk to me about cryptocurrencies over the past year or so. Uh, the last time they talked this much about it was several years before that, before the crash that happened before that. Um, and one of the things that I emphasize most of the owners of cryptocurrencies, most of the owners of these meme stocks are not people that would consider themselves to be professional investors. They're amateur investors. They don't do it for a living. They have a day job. They're enjoying it. They're doing this. It's fun and it feels good to be winning. Well, what I've said to them, and this is universal, it's part of the education process of investing, is that if you're a professional and you're doing it for more than fun, you need to know why you would sell something before you buy it. Most people don't know why they buy a cryptocurrency or a meme stock. They, maybe they want it to go up, but they don't know what that means. When would they sell? And deciding that before you buy is a really nice professional practice. Like if you're buying a backhoe, you will sell it never if you have a construction company. If you're buying a backhoe and you see other backhoe prices go way, way up and you have extra, well, you would say, well, I will sell it for that because I know at some point I can get that backhoe at a better price. That's a professional business practice. When you apply that to the stock market, uh, you should be saying, hey, I want to own this stock because I really like what it does and I never want to sell it. Okay, that's a good methodology if you really like the stock, you really like the company. But you should be aware of what the company does because companies change their mind on what they're doing over long periods of time. So making that decision shouldn't be a fire and forget, it's all over. You make that decision and then you, re you refresh that decision, look at it again and say, all right, is that still a good operating decision? When it comes to cryptocurrencies, most people don't know why they would sell. And I have had so many conversations with people that are not just intelligent, but they're top of their field type intelligent. And they fall into the same trap of they bought it because they want it to go up. But they don't know why they would sell it. They don't know what they would hold it for. Well, I'm just going to hold it to maintain the value. Well, if that's the only reason why everybody is holding it is to maintain the value, then all it takes is people selling it and the price drops. If you're buying it to make the value go up, what is it that's happening internally? So it comes back to when it comes to cryptocurrency, you can't look at the fundamentals of the profitability of the underlying company. So you have to say, well, this is pure technical. I need to make my decision on when I would sell. And there's some technical things that you can do. You can look at uh, uh, rolling averages and look back a certain period of time and when it looks like it's a good time to drop out. Or you can just say, hey, I put $7,000 in this thing. It's now worth $140,000. I should take some profit. Almost universally what I'm seeing, and by almost universally, there's people that have bought houses out of cryptocurrencies and they've bought cars out of it. Take your profits 
when the profits are good. That's true across the market. Set an allocation and say, I don't want this part of my portfolio to be higher than 10% of my portfolio. And when it gets above, when it's at 20%, well, sell 10% of it. Get it back down. Take that profit and use it somewhere else. Use it to invest in maybe something conservative. Take the profit. That's how professionals do it. Unfortunately, and I can't say this enough, that is not how people are buying meme stocks or selling meme stocks. They're selling meme stocks for the same reason that they're buying meme stocks. Same with crypto. They buy it because it's going up. They sell it because it's going down. That, that's the opposite of buy low, sell high, but it's kind of what we're all hardwired to do if we're not thinking about it clearly as we go about it. Let's talk about China for a minute. Okay. There's a lot to talk about on China. It's a big country. Um, one of the bits and pieces of news that's pretty important is China's population in 2021 was effectively the same as it was in 2020. They have begun wow. the shrinking. And in other words, there's as many people dying in almost, I, they, well, considering that the, the statistics aren't perfect from China, um, there are about as many people died in 2021 as, as were born in 2021 in China. What does that mean? That means their population will grow rapidly older from this point. It means their population will shrink from this point in all likelihood. Now, they don't want it to. One of the reasons China has done so exceptionally well in terms of economic growth is it 20 years ago had a very young population. Right. And it was going hard because young people work a lot harder than older people. And so that makes sense in every aspect of it. And their population was, was still growing quite quickly. So they were introducing a lot of people into the workforce. It's very important to note that the GDP of a nation really boils down to the number of people working times the amount of work those people do in terms of in, in dollars. That's the gross domestic product of a nation minus inflation. So it's the number, it's the number of people times the amount of productive work they do measured in dollars minus inflation. That's the gross domestic product. I'm, I'm sharing so, a screen with you. If you look over there. At yeah, the, I see that. Yeah. It looks like, a, looks like I'm supposed to reading a shape that looks like a temple. Right. That it's, one looks like a it's butterfly. The, it's the demographic pyramid. And basically what it says here, number one, China's fertility rate is at 1.7 children per woman, per woman, per woman, per woman, which means yeah. that they're not replacing their population. They've got a 15% generational drop, uh, in, in that category. Uh, and I'm showing you this, this crazy picture, which nobody on the radio can, can see, nobody on podcasts can see. And you couldn't thank yourself for not being able to see it because it's a rather complicated looking uh, graph. But what it says is there is a bulge in the population of China that runs at about the 30 to 34-year-old range. That's childbearing age. And they're not having kids. And after that, there's no bulges. There's shrinks, lots and lots of shrinks, because that's when the one-child policy really went into effect about 40 years ago. So we see the population tar start to shrink, which means for China, they have maybe five years 
to institute some changes that will allow their population to grow while they have a lot of mothers available to have babies. They're about to age out of the population in the next five years or so. Well, there's a significant event occurred when they switched away from the one-child policy. Yeah. When it was illegal to have more than one child. Their birth rate dropped. Yeah. And it's not coming back. And it's continuing to drop. So one of the things that obviously, and I've heard people concerned about is that the Chinese are going to take over the world. They're going to crush the United States economically. They're going to pass the United States in gross domestic product. And they just keep surging into the future. And the whole world will speak Chinese at some point and be dominated by China. Mm, nope. For one thing, the Chinese don't allow immigration. They just, it's almost impossible to move to China. Not that anybody really wants to, I want to add. People want to get out of China, but they don't want to get into China. So there's two ways a population of a socioeconomic group like the United States of China can grow. We can have more babies, which we don't do very well. In any any of the developed countries around the world, there's a problem. And the problem is we people, once they become relatively well-off financially, don't have enough children to replace the population. So if we allow immigration to come in, we can still have a growing population because immigrants have to do something different. On average, immigrants have lots more children because they came out of a relatively poor position and they generally are relatively poor when they come into the country. So the population continues to grow. The gross domestic, the gross domestic product continues to grow. The wealth continues to grow in that nation. When nations have low birth rates and they don't allow immigration, it's like the clock is set and the timer is going on, and at some point it's going to go ding, and this nation isn't going, this particular socioeconomic group is not going to be viable into the future. Um, that's happened in other places around the world at various times. It's happening fairly rapidly in places like Italy, where they're begging people to move to Italy unless you happen to have dark skin and speak Arabic. And basically they're, they're begging Americans and people from the rest of Europe to move to Italy because they simply are looking down the road to the point when they will be a nation of old retired people and not able to afford to support the old retired people. Uh, are we going to go there in the United States? Frankly, this is not politically very popular, but it depends on one thing. Will we allow sufficient immigration into the United States from other places to allow us to continue to grow our GDP and our nation and the base and our worker base? If we don't, then somewhere down the road, we will be a nation of old people trying to draw on retirement funds with not enough young people to support them. The Chinese are leading the way, by the way. I must, I, I want to commend them for this experiment. On They're what? showing us how it works, what on how, it? To, how to shrink a population. Yes. What happens when a population shrinks? I mean, the Italians have worked it out pretty well, and you would think that that would be good enough, but the Chinese don't want to be left out, so they're enjoying in the population shrinking. Uh, experiment to see what happens over time. By the way, that was considered to be, by at least some scholars, the main reason for the fall of the Roman Empire. They populated themselves away? They depopulated. The Romans depopulated. And they didn't, they were very reluctant to allow people to become Roman citizens. And so you had the barbarians around the borders populating themselves very nicely and the Romans depopulating themselves. And ultimately, it caused the collapse of the Roman Empire. Right. Just, just as a side note, this is, this is fun for those of you that are nerdly like we are. If you just do a search, Google um, population pyramids, 
and um, you you can start to see some really cool graphs. And at first, you see these graphs, and you're like, "What is this?" But if you start looking back at, for instance, China's population pyramid, you see these weird bulges in weird places. What you can see is the the killoffs led by Mao in their population periods and pyramids. You can see their one-child policy taking place. You can look over at South Korea's and see a much smoother downgrade in their uh, birth rate as uh, instead of using like draconian methods of literally killing people to prevent births, um, they just made people wealthier to prevent births. And you have this really kind of smooth... Um, bulgy looking thing that is South Korea. Now there's some bulges in there and there's some weirdnesses. Like uh, if you're looking at the population uh, in the mid 60s and above, you'll find that there's a lot more women than is usual. Well, what is that about? Well, there was a big war about that time where a lot of the men died. So you can see, it's kind of like reading the matrix and looking at the code. You can see massive population shifts and as far as economics goes, you know, everybody talks about supply and demand because that's important. It is kind of a fundamental way you can use to understand the economy. But what drives supply and demand is productivity and demographics. The population, is it growing? Is it shrinking? Are they getting more productive or less productive? So a shrinking population that's getting more productive can still grow the gross domestic product. But a shrinking population that's getting less productive, that's really bad. And over the last several years, productivity in China, believe it or not, has fallen. Uh, well, huh? What are we talking about? I thought China's still growing. Well, you know the whole supply chain issue, right? About the shutdowns and lockdowns all across China. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's caused productivity to drop. It's amazing. When you shut down a plant, they stop making stuff. It's amazing. Are you saying if you force people to stay home and not work, then the productivity of that area falls off? I know. It's weird. It's just, Mm. you know, economics is just the weird science where they say things like if you stop working, less work gets done. Uh, But that's the reality. And so what we're seeing is a shrinking population in China at the same time that their productivity is falling. And it's not just from the lockdowns. Innovation is dropping off because they're cracking down on the innovators. So all of these are not good signals for China in the long term. They're they're getting much more one person rule centric. They're cracking. They're they're and I've said this last week. I've said it lots of other times. If you really look at the definition of styles of government uh, and styles of economies, China's not a communist government. I, that shocks people. They're like, oh, they're, they're red China. No, they're a feudalist thing. They have an emperor right now. It's maybe an emperor that the Chinese party elects, that the communist party elects. They call it communist party. It, you got to put that in the past tense. Elected. It's, elected. He's now premier yeah. for life. Well, he's the, the, uh, the fact is that uh, two years ago, they removed term limits and then they just run. It didn't even hit the news here. They, the election happened for his third term and he won it's amazing it's and and uh he won so and nobody even ran against him it's amazing he's the emperor 
He's giving his speeches from the dragon throne. It really is a carved dragon throne. He is the emperor. They just call him chairman uh, or president. Or Well, he has, he has, the throne is a chair. It is a chairman, yeah. So he's, he's a chairman, right? And that's literally what that means. I mean, all across the oldest cultures on the planet, the one that sits in the chair is the chief or the king. So when you say chairman, it's the same as saying king in Africa, and evidently it is the same as saying emperor in China. Uh, I'm going to make some predictions. You made some okay. just now. Uh, the first quarter is not going to be as high growth as the fourth quarter. I'm True. not saying that because the market's... And we haven't got the fourth quarter out yet. Yeah, I'm not saying that because the market's down. I'm not saying that, but I, I'm saying it about some very specific things. Fourth quarter, we were recovering from the Delta variant, and we had extremely mild weather. We had a spread out of our Christmas buying season well into November, way before Black Friday. So all of that's good. Come forward the first quarter. First quarter is always the problem, child. It's winter. Winter is not good for the economy. Uh, it is to really not good for the economy. You can look back throughout history. The first quarter is the one that's most likely to be in the negative. Uh, and that's because you're dealing with ice and snow, and we've already had some big winter weather in the Northeast. Anytime we have big winter storms hit the Northeast that shut down in the middle of the week, if they hit in the weekend, we're in good shape, hit in the middle of the week, and it causes the entire economy to either begin to not grow as quickly or to shrink. I don't think we're seeing shrinkage in the economy. I think the slowing of growth is what we're seeing. But we're going to see a slower growth in the first quarter than what we've grown to expect during the pandemic. But I think the second quarter is going to have a big boom back for the same reason as it did last quarter after Delta. The same reason you were saying earlier, lots of cash is sitting in the bank uh, in Americans there's less debt out there than there was pre-pandemic and more savings, lots more savings. Uh, so people are likely to eat out less this quarter because of multiple things. If you take all your restaurant eating outside and then you have a snowstorm, there's less outside eating. I don't what? know why that is. I, I, strange, but uh, for some reason, temperature has an effect on our appetite. Um, so all of this stuff, when I bring economics to this level, I think people like it better than the dry numbers, but this is, this is the point when the storms are hitting and we have an uptick in infection, just expect you not to have the same kind of growth. Now we're still seeing innovation growth like is just right off the charts. The number of new businesses created in 2020 and 2021, this is, these are numbers we haven't seen since World War II, at the end of World War II, when people came back and started businesses. And expect that to continue as the more and more people that are in the service industry of, of waiting tables and playing music for you go, this is not horribly viable anymore. I keep losing my job. And then they assure me, oh, we're back to normal. And then I lose it again. We're not through this, and for a while, the next several years, we're still going to have big restrictions on eating and things like that. So that means that part of the economy that's still the most sensitive to this is going to have some real shrinkage. Expect the uh, hospitality world to have a major dip in the first quarter of this year. 
I expect it to jump back up when we're through this wave and then before we hit another wave, if we hit another wave. Uh, but the, just expect more volatility in that area of the economy. Other parts of the economy, we're seeing massive resurgence. So um, I don't know if you saw this, that Intel is about to put in another big chip plant. Yep. Uh, Samsung's putting in big chip plants. Basically, all the big chip manufacturers are making plants in the United States. There's, it, it's getting up close to, to the trillion dollar mark. It's easily rounded up to a trillion dollars in new money going into new chip manufacturing in the last part of last year and the first part of this year. That is huge for the potential later in the year. That means that prices are going to come down on all things that have chips as soon as they get built. And these plants are getting built fast. They are not the, we'll get this done in the next three years type plants anymore. Uh, Tesla has rebuilt that type of model. And the rest of the marketplace is saying, hey, we can do that too. So expect these plants to get done relatively quickly within a year. And then we're going to see prices on chips drop. And eventually, we're likely to have surplus chips right at a time when we've got a lot of small businesses that are able to innovate with that a lot faster than the big businesses. This is really cool. Our capacity is getting better. We're getting better at doing things. I saw a, a, a headline in the Wall Street Journal this week that said... Uh, even if COVID is less virulent or even it, we're still all poorer. And the reality is the opposite of that. Our economy has recovered to pre-pandemic levels and above. Uh, the unemployment levels in Texas and Arizona, Idaho, and Utah are above the level they were pre-pandemic. And that's got it. We're still missing about 2 million people out of the workforce from pre-pandemic across this, the country. That stuff is, all of us are getting retooled to do this better. And I see COVID as actually a spur to make us grow faster, which is really strange. Usually when we have a negative impact onto the economy, it is truly just that. We're devising better ways of doing business. We're devising ways of doing business that we had put on hold for decades because ah, it's too much to do. We're doing fine as we are. We're getting better at doing things that we've been doing for a long time, specifically because of the pandemic. So we're getting growth above what is normal because of the shrinkage that we had. And it's, it's kind of like if you think about a basketball game, it was our talk about the trade war you, you don't get to be a better basketball team by forcing the other team when they come to play on your court to play with only one arm each. That does not make you a better player. You may win more games, but you are going to be worse as a team. What we're doing now is instituting training schedules and regimes that cause us as a business, as businesses in our country, to work harder and better at doing what we did before. To be better at it, means that we're going to be more nimble at each progressive wave of the pandemic. We're going to get better at dealing with it. We're already doing it. You can see it kind of across everywhere. We're still trying things that are failing. 
Like school districts have to stay open in order to get funded from the federal government. You've got to have kids in class. Every day they're in class, you get a certain amount of money. If they all go home, the federal government gives the school less money. Well, that's probably not the best plan if we want to effectively teach the kids. Well, we got to come up with better ways of doing it. Those are the long-term changes that have to occur. The short-term stuff is already happening on the supply side. We're bringing in new chip function factories. We're bringing in new car manufacturing. We're all those cool things that we've been talking about maybe happening in the next 10, 15 years are being concentrated now. That causes us to be pretty excited. And if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we do give fiduciary investment advice to folks of high net worth and those of you that really are curious about it. Um, the local line is... 254-947-1111. And our toll-free number is 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can see our radio program there. You can also go to any podcast provider for that. Uh, it goes back lots of years. You, you can, can see our radio program? You can see it before you click it, and that's how okay. you see it. Um, we've got uh, newsletters there. You can sign up for that. Um, you can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. Thanks for listening. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.